0: Our second local investigative winner tonight also looks at law enforcement with a critical eye from inside the classroom. Reporter Begad Shaban spent nearly two years sifting through data to show how certain school districts misuse police to discipline students, some as young as six years old, leaving some with criminal records for what could be seen as mere childish behavior. Please welcome Begad Shaban.
1: That's got to be fun to hear CNN's Jake Tapper call your name to come up and receive a DuPont silver baton. That was recorded back in January at the DuPont ceremony at Columbia University's Low Library. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Awards, among many other things. Hello, Lisa.
2: Hi, Abby, and hello to our audience. So summer is drawing to a close, and our new class of journalism students are flooding the halls. So we thought we would end our On Assignment podcast summer series with a back-to-school episode. We're spotlighting 2018 winner Begad Chaban and NBC Bay Area's reporting about police officers who were assigned to safeguard schools and how sometimes that goes awry. That's right. The winners of
1: the DuPont Columbia Award for outstanding audio and video reporting, Begad and his team took a deep dive through the data to show that schools in the Bay Area were calling police
2: on a disproportionate number of minority students and students with disabilities. The series led to reform efforts not just in the Bay Area, but nationwide. So we thought we'd welcome BeGad into our school to talk about his work and his award-winning techniques to get to the bottom of these important issues. Here now is an edited conversation we
1: had recently with NBC Bay Area's BeGad Shaban.
2: Thank you for joining us today. We want to just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about what the story is.
0: It's essentially a story about how school districts, not just here in the Bay Area, but really around the country, are misusing law enforcement to discipline students, which ultimately has and continues to lead to kids getting disciplinary records, essentially even arrest records, before they even hit puberty. As a high school freshman, Kai did flips across the field during lunch. His classmates cheered him on, while some captured it on video. How long do you think you were on the field?
2: 30 seconds, maybe. I did a couple somersaults, and then they asked me to step off the grass, and I stepped off.
0: Kai was arrested for trespassing at his own school and disturbing the peace.
1: It's so interesting because in the in these times, when I think about police or law enforcement in schools my idea is that the law enforcement are there to protect children from, you know, the outside world or just to protect for, sa- for the safety of the children. But this sounds like a different use of law enforcement, one that, you know, is hard for me to understand the rationale. But h- how is it that law enforcement has become used in this way instead of protecting students, actually disciplining them?
0: Well, I think that role was always the intent um, from the very beginning and continues to be at a lot of school districts. I would venture to say all school districts. And I think we knew that we were onto something when police officers themselves were telling us that there was a problem. And I think it it sort of became this slippery slope. I can tell you, for example, in California, what we saw is that at a time of of huge budget cuts um, when it came to education, counselors were really the first wave of educators to go. And so in the wake of some obviously awful and unfortunate school shootings, no one wanted to say let's minimize or reduce or even get rid of uh, the number of police officers at school campuses because of that, that notion that you raised, that we want to make sure that our kids, our, our educators, our teachers, our staff, everyone's safe. But what ended up happening in certain uh, circumstances is that you had police officers who normally were working the beat, dealing on the street with really violent offenders, drug dealers, um, prostitutes, gang violence. And so now, part-time, they're working at a school, which is really a completely different workflow. And so when someone isn't listening to an officer in the classroom, should the officer respond the exact same way when someone isn't listening to them outside the classroom in sort of a violent situation or one where there could be potential harm? You know, okay, so a kid did scribble on a sidewalk is that technically vandalism sure i guess you could argue by the letter of the law it is but is the best way to handle it really for the officer to arrest that kid and by the way the kid is 13 years old and so it really sort of raised some really deep questions about what is the best way to handle and deal with misbehavior within a school district that doesn't sort of criminalize kids for what some describe are just kids being kids.
2: And when you say counselor, you mean guidance counselor, right? Exactly, yeah. And
1: the other aspect in your series, which was so great, is that you covered it from all points of view, including law enforcement who find themselves in these situations without the proper training, right?
0: Our reporting also revealed that while the Department of Justice recommends 40 hours of additional training for school-based officers, San Jose PD only provided... A half hour. How much can you really learn in 30 minutes? Um, you can learn a lot in 30 minutes, but I think that's going to be increased. Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting as you had school districts telling us, oh, no, we don't misuse police officers for discipline or for, you know, unnecessary modes of discipline. And then we interviewed Police officers at that district and they tell us, yes, we, we do feel we're being misused. So, I mean, that was when the Department of Justice actually pretty clearly outlines th- their recommendation that officers should have at least 40 hours of training um, before they're actually utilized by schools across America. Three months after we sat down with the sergeant, he and other officers from his department traveled to Southern California to receive those 40 hours of training in school-based policing.
2: So that's one really clear example of impact of your reporting.
0: It was. And we were really proud that I think that was one of, of several. I mean, we had essentially massive changes in security policy in the way that schools utilize police that um, ultimately ended up impacting 34 schools, With essentially touched 34,000 students.
1: So you guys have a lot of powerful data sets in the reporting for this series that really clearly illustrated, you know, disproportionate use of discipline or even arrests for minority populations or for kids with learning disabilities. How hard was it for you guys to get that information?
0: You know, initially we were using data sets that were provided by the Department of Education. So through a public records request, we were able to get sort of massive data sets. But we wanted to get sort of even more granular in our own community. And so we set out doing public records requests with 20 of the largest school districts in the Bay Area. So what that ended up equating to was about 160 different school districts across the Bay. And in terms of their response to our public records request, that really sort of ran the gamut. I mean, you had some districts try to explain to us, that they didn't have to give us the data. And so there was a whole lesson in explaining to them how sunshine laws worked and that they did have to provide the data. There were some school districts that provided the data that weren't exactly what we were looking for. And so there was a lot of back and forth. And so just even collecting the data was really sort of a journey in itself.
2: How long did it take you?
0: This was months. Months. Yeah, months, Lisa, that we were waiting back. I mean, as you might imagine, some districts literally the next day they provided it in the most sort of neat, you know, basically you could have put like a cherry on top. It was exactly what we were hoping for. And then there were other districts that, yeah, we literally had to go back and forth for for months um, before we could even get to the point where we could an- analyze the data.
1: And then once you had the data, you needed, you know, personal stories to illustrate the data. How did you guys begin that process?
0: You know, it was interesting because one of the sort of trends that we saw were that hands down, not just in the Bay Area, but again, at districts across the country, black students and students with disabilities were being disproportionately arrested and referred to law enforcement. Um, and so I began making calls first at um, sort of just parents' groups um, here locally, um, specifically of parents and guardians of children with disabilities. And it was almost immediate. I mean, I just sort of just began and it was like parent after parent was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you called. You won't believe what happened to my kid. And oh, my gosh, this happened to my kid last week or last year or this month. And it was just sort of eerie um, similarity in in parent after parent sort of expressing really their, their frustration and anger. And I think it was a lot of sadness, too, at how they felt schools were treating their kids and how sometimes they wouldn't even get a phone call that their school ended up calling police on their child and weren't even notified um, and would come to pick their kid up to find their kid sitting with a police officer again for something that I think a fair number of people would describe as just sort of childish misbehavior not actually any criminal wrongdoing
2: they wouldn't reach out to the parents to tell them that they were being arrested
0: in some instances no no. And what what I think was also a, a huge sort of lack of, of, of communication and a clear sort of miss in the process is that I remember when I was younger, you know, you could get like a pink slip maybe if you misbehaved. And that pink slip lived and died at that school. It was just a note that sort of went into your parents. There was no um, criminal ramifications from this from this form. But with school officers actively patrolling at school districts, this isn't simply a referral anymore. They're, the child is actually being arrested, even though they may not be put in handcuffs. As far as the criminal justice system sees it, that child who just got this form that the mom may, you know, might just think, "Okay, you obviously acted up today." I'll just there's nothing to sign for that parent at all. It's just actually a notification that your child was arrested. And so there's this whole process that then follows, you having to meet with a probation officer, going to the district attorney's office. Um, and what we found is that particularly in the Bay Area, in one community actually, about 70 percent of these quote-unquote arrests that were being referred to the district attorney were, were being thrown out. But the fact that they were even given to begin with means that child was arrested. So even though the district attorney, for example, isn't choosing to prosecute, you still have an arrest record all of a sudden.
2: So that was one of the things that I found really confusing because and I'm sure it confused the parents, too. You use the terminology uh, school resource officer and you said they got citations. And then that sort of morphs into police and arrests. Are they exactly the same thing?
0: They They are they are and it can vary district by district but here in the bay area so a citation that you're getting from an officer is equivalent to an arrest so the term arrest actually isn't determined whether or not you get put in handcuffs and and taken downtown and and booked that actual citation is an arrest and so as, as a child you actually you're eligible to have that sort of expunged from your record But in in certain communities in the Bay Area, you actually can't even legally start that process until you turn 18. And it's something you actually have to take on on your own. You have to petition a judge. There are fees involved. Um, And so for one of the children that we actually featured in our story, I mean, that was something that literally put his mom in tears because she just feels like her son will never get to a point in his life. um, He has autism and, and she was just fearful if anything should ever happen to me for my husband, I just don't know how he'd ever go through the process of of, of knowing even how to navigate this system, of trying to get rid of of, of this arrest record.
1: It's a real undue burden. Um, so you all interviewed several children in the series as well, really powerful interviews. How did you approach interviewing the kids about this really, you know, intense and and hurtful subject?
0: Yeah, I mean, we knew that, I mean, for anyone, it would be really traumatic, and, and for one of the first young students that we interviewed, Adrian Crosby, he was just 13 when he was arrested for scribbling on a sidewalk.
2: I thought maybe someone would look at it and say, oh, look, a legend. Oh, look, a, a legend. That This is so cool. A legend was at this school.
0: You thought leaving your initials would give you a legacy.
2: Yes. I thought I, I, I did something awesome, but then... They called me to the office and said, hey, you, you did something wrong. I think we have to call the cops on you now.
0: How did you react?
2: Fear, fear to my toes, to my, to my brain, fear.
0: And were you crying?
2: I was, I was bawling. They said, if you won't, won't if you won't sign the citation, we're bringing handcuffs in.
0: And I first was able to chat with his mom. And I asked her if she thought that he might be willing to speak with us. And he obviously was really, really shy. And when we ended up coming that next time, I just wanted to meet him in person. No cameras or anything. We just wanted to make sure he was comfortable and sort of hear his story. And Adrian refused to come out of his room. He didn't want to talk to us. He didn't want to see us. Uh, I think for a while he, he was screaming. And so, of course, I told his mom the last thing we want to do is make him feel uncomfortable or unhappy. And so at a certain point, Adrian came and he talked to me through his door. But he didn't want to open his door. And so I think we maybe talked for like, it was probably maybe like an hour or so that we just kind of talked through his door and um, I said goodbye and I thought, you know, I asked him if it'd be okay if maybe I came back another day and he said, sure. And so then I came a second time and Adrian and I chatted and for a little bit, he wanted only if he could talk to me, I think he wanted to sit in his closet. And so we talked a little bit through there and then we sort of built it up to where I could eventually come back with my photographer And initially, Adrian didn't want to face the camera, which obviously became a sort of logistical (laughs) problem for us to deal with, you know, especially being television. Um, You know, and ultimately, after talking with Adrian, we got to the point where he felt comfortable enough with us to kind of sit down and and share his story. But again, for anyone, I mean, you know, his mom says that he still clearly has like a physical reaction whenever he sees a police officer. I mean, this is something that still touches him years, years later.
2: He was so eloquent. He spoke so eloquently about what happened to him and his confusion and and pain about it.
0: I think it, it's such this amazing experience and opportunity to interview kids and, and students because I think there's this amazing sort of genuineness about them that I, I just felt like when you were talking with Adrian, there was no filter. I mean, everything that he felt, he was telling me. And I thought it was such... I mean, it's like this immense amount of responsibility to to obviously share his story and, and get it right and 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 do him justice in what has been this really traumatic experience for him. But that's what I thought was really remarkable. I mean, you know, we could have all the data in the world. I think the moment that the story really came to life is when when we found Adrian. And I think that was sort of an important element of this series. Like, should Adrian have scribbled his initials onto the sidewalk? No, he shouldn't. But I think that's not what this piece was arguing, and I, I think it was just trying to sort of reveal these sort of vignette stories of, okay, these kids shouldn't have done what they did, but should the schools have acted and responded the way that they did? I mean, was this, was this something where kids needed to be arrested? I mean, if, if the whole objective is to better serve the student, is that really what the school is doing here? And it almost seemed like everyone was in agreement that the answer is no. And so then it sort of begs the question, then why are schools and police continuing to do this when everyone's saying we shouldn't do this? And and that was, I think, what sort of propelled us from the beginning.
1: Well, and also the lack of consistency between school districts, even in one region, right? I mean, that your sit-down interview with the school official is a priceless moment of the person in charge of the operation, sort of the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing, Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we had police officers themselves acknowledging to us that as it, if you have two students who committed the same kind of infraction, who might attend schools, you know, just across town from each other, one might simply get sent to the principal's office and the other one is arrested for the exact same thing. And so I think totally to your point, I think a huge portion of the story was just sort of a, a story about equity. And I mean, why are we continuing... To allow a system to exist where students are just being treated totally differently for, for committing the same sort of infraction or, or disciplinary, and then you know also on the school district side, you know we interviewed one school official who, who said that it wasn't this wasn't happening. We oh we're not we're not giving kids criminal records. No student on our, that's attending our campus is gaining a criminal record uh, because of something we've done. We don't focus on um, arresting or sending kids away. That's, that's completely counter to what an educator should do. But that is what's happening. That is not happening in my school district. But in a single school year, 283 kids in your district were referred to police. Okay. So it is happening. I, kids are cited on our campuses sometimes, yes. And do you know that this can give them a criminal record? I know what happens when I issue my own consequences. I don't know what happens when police issue their consequences. So you have no idea that these kids are getting criminal records? I wouldn't know that one way or the other. But don't you head discipline for the district? And I take care of discipline for the district. If consequences go beyond that into the into the legal realm, that's not our purview, that's not our business.
2: How do you get someone like that school official to sit down for an interview? He obviously didn't look very good at the end of it. You really held him accountable.
0: Yeah, I'd say that <laughs> I'd say much of my job now is finding that that perfect interview that I think sort of embodies the, the disconnect or problem or social ill or you know, system breakdown. And so in each piece that we do, that's sort of the topmost understanding is that our piece is going to reveal some kind of of wrongdoing or breakdown in the system. And so in this particular scenario, you know, as we are with all interviews, I mean, we were very upfront what we had and what we wanted to talk to them about. You know, I mean, we, we had the numbers, we, we told them that we did and, and that we wanted to give them an opportunity to, to sit down with us. So, I mean, the conversations, again, we're, we're fortunate that when someone says, oh, we're not available today, I'm able to say, okay, what about tomorrow? And then they'll say, actually, this week isn't going to work. And then I can say, "Okay, Okay. what about next week? (laughs) And when they say next month, I can still say, "Okay, what about the month after? And so there were certainly conversations that this is not a story that you could turn in a day or a week or even a month. And I think for us to have that kind of luxury where, you know, there are certainly some places if I would have went the first time and Adrian wouldn't have sat down. I would have been, you know, ordered to move on <laughs> to the next story. Um, and so I think to to be at a place that that trusts us enough to where that it takes time for that person on the other end to be able to feel like they trust you, I think is, a, you know, is important. And I, I think there aren't a lot of media outlets that you can be a part of that I think would afford you that amazing opportunity. You know, unfortunately, I think maybe even now more than ever, people feel sort of, emboldened that they don't have to answer for certain things. And I think as a public official, I mean, taxpayers are paying his or her salary. And so I think, you know, we feel really strongly that they should have to answer for things that they're doing on the public's behalf. And, you know, for us, us sort of rolling on people when they may not expect us and sort of sticking a mic in their face and hoping that the answer there might be some people who you know might argue that that makes great television and let's do that first and for us that is absolutely the last resort i would much rather have an actual conversation with someone because i i'm i don't want the distraction to be me panting as i'm trying to keep up with them as we're running down the sidewalk i mean i think this is a this is an important issue and so let's have a conversation like like adults and i think some of those most powerful moments aren't from the, you know, running after someone. It's, it's we're both sitting here and we're both, I'm calmly asking you a question. And so why can't you answer it?
2: So one of the other important points that you made in the piece was that it also disproportionately affects minorities. And what did you learn about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the question ultimately, I think, became, you know, why are certain kids being treated differently than Than other kids. So, nationally, we found that black students are about three times more likely to be arrested at school than white students. And then in California, what that meant, that means that a black student with a disability is 16 times more likely to be arrested at school than a white student without a disability. And so, I think that became a huge part of it, too, is that it's not as if districts are unaware of of the sort of racial bias that's going on. I I think the sort of the larger component is, okay, so what are you doing about it?
1: What was the viewer reaction to the piece in the community?
0: In terms of the viewer feedback, I mean, it was pretty immediate. I think there was sort of public outrage, certainly about Adrian's story. That was sort of one part of the, the type of feedback that we received. But I think the other part was from parents of children with disabilities and, and children with, without who had similar stories. And that actually helped sort of inform future stories um, that, that we were able to sort of put together to continue to sort of tell this montage of of pieces that sort of ultimately combined into in what became of this series.
2: And did you ever hear about, did Adrian have any kind of response? Did he watch it?
0: Yeah, no, Adrian really, really enjoyed it, actually. Um, so Adrian is now 18 and his mom, um, she was actually giving me an update how he's about to start the process to uh, petition a judge to have the arrest record removed. So, yeah, it's crazy to think how, you know, even five years after it first happened, I mean, he's sort of still dealing with it.
1: So, Big Ed, tell us a little bit about how you got into television news.
0: So I'm really curious. Oh, I think my wife would say nosy. <laughs> I've always loved, um, writing. Both my parents are educators. And so for a really long time, I, I, I thought I would be a teacher. And in high school, I started writing for the paper and I thought, Oh my gosh, I love this. And so I, I knew that journalism was going to be in, in my path. And so I was a broadcast journalism and political science, uh, double major at university of Florida. And it was actually my freshman year I got an internship with the Today Show in New York. And I just thought that was just a really sort of eye-opening experience about how news works and just so many different amazing roles of what the editors do and the photographers and the producers and the reporters and the field producers.
1: So. Bigad, you you've spoken about your parents a couple of times and your mom was with you when you came to Columbia in January to get your DuPont award. That was great to have her in the audience, right? Oh, my
0: gosh, it absolutely was. I think if you asked her, though, I came with her when she got her accolades. <laughs> Before I turn the podium over to Gail King, where's where's uh, Bigad Chaban's uh, mom? Where is she? jake tapper was uh very kind and i had mentioned my mom in my speech and um it was very thoughtful of him after i spoke he asked my mom to stand will you, will you stand up so we can all kind of applaud now. and uh just get uh, just huge applause from the audience which it was really it brought the house down oh it totally your did your mom brought the house down she yeah. was she was the star of the show <laughs>
2: <laughs> and well deserved too yeah
0: absolutely so yeah she was on cloud 9 it was really um yeah it was a really special night for her and for me i mean to be recognized with by so alongside so many just um fantastic journalists i think especially at at a time now where you know i think part of the talk about journalism i mean you feel like you can't talk about news anymore without hearing a reference to fake news and and I feel what that has become is just, you know, such an easy moniker to, to just um, easily dismiss honest, remarkable reporting. Um, it's, it's so, it was so beautiful to stand alongside some real powerhouses who are, are just shining a light where there's still so much darkness. And I think the kind of work that's going on right now, I mean, you will – surely read about in the history books not not far from now, about just bringing real exposure and, and truth um, you know at a time when, when it really when communities really need it.
1: You know, and other thing that communities really need is strong local reporting, um, which is something that we honor every year at the DuPonts. There are fewer reporters on a local level, which means it's more important than ever. You know, to have people like you and your colleagues doing the work that you're doing. So,
0: well, thank you guys so much. I think to to, to have this forum um, to even available to to local journalists and, and national journalists alike, and I think there is such this amazing renaissance going on right now, particularly with local reporting. I think the investment, um, specifically in investigative reporting at the local level, is just amazing to see. Um, you know just following fellow DuPont winners on social media and, and, and seeing the the kinds of stories that are routinely coming out, I think is just amazing.
1: Well, keep up the good work, Big Ed. We'll be watching.
0: Well, I so appreciate it.
2: And thank you for joining us. It's terrific to talk to you.
1: Thank you, to Bigad for taking time away from coverage of the California
2: wildfires and all the other big stories in the Bay Area to talk to us. Coming up, our new fall season starts next month. And one of the highlights, our first Film Friday documentary series screening of the school year will be the box office smash RBG which, if you don't already know it, is a riveting and timely profile of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'll record the Film Friday's conversation, as we do, with filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen, plus executive producer CNN's Amy N. They are three women of the almost all-women team, if not all-women team, who are the brains behind RBG.
1: All three of them are also affiliated with the journalism school. They're alums or they teach here, so that's another great thing about it. I just took one of my daughters to see RBG, and it was very inspiring and relevant. So I look forward to that. This episode of On Assignment was brought
2: to you with the support of Columbia Journalism School and the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It was produced by J-School grad Sarah Wyman with assistance from Julia Flassvahler. Special thanks to A.J. Mangone. And our music is by Dylan Nowick. Until next time.